What's the crack? I'm Brona. And I'm Ava. We enjoy listening to people tell their stories. And hearing their different perspectives. Which is why we started this podcast. In today's episode, we are talking to Alan Bottoms. Alan never went to any sort of formal schooling. Instead, he learned from the School of Life. He is a surfer with a deep connection to the ocean and a volunteer researcher at the Planet Calls. He came here today to share his perspective on the institutions within our society and daily lives, and also spoke about the brain and how it influences our perception of the world. Alan, do you want to just tell us a bit about yourself? It's one of these questions that it's been an interesting place for me to try and answer that question for one. You know, I look, I understand the nature of the question. You know, most people, they'll say like, yeah, look, oh, I'm so-and-so and I'm a, and I do this and I do that and my interests are this and my interests are that. And, but the thing for me though, is that that's been what my life has been about, trying to figure out how to answer that question. This is who I am as a human being. I mean, yeah, look, I could tell you about the jobs that I've done in my life. I mean, I've poured drinks for people. I've played music. I've taught English to foreigners. I've built cars and buses and trucks. I've fixed computers. I've built computers. I've um, troubleshooted things. I've built websites. I've done meditation music. Basically, I've done whatever I've needed to do to survive. I think like a lot of people out there, if I had to find a common ground for everything I've done. It's not really been about the job. It's been about the interactions with people that I've found in those jobs and just learning about how I work and sharing ideas with people. My lifestyle is, it's a journey. It's an exploration of what it is to be a human being. You know, I try to do the best I can. I try to meet people where they're at in respect and you know, recognize that they can be my greatest teachers, that they can be my greatest challenges. I guess that's a long way around of saying something about myself, but like without actually giving it a label. I'm not against labels or anything like that. It's, I mean, I see the value in them and so on. It's just, like I said, I'm a work in progress, I think, in that regard, <laughs> you know. I think I'm a creator of questions, a purveyor of perspective. How's that? Brilliant. <laughs> Yeah, and and not to give you much of a label, but you seem like a very free-spirited person. Would you say that you are actually very anti-institution and the way, the kind of systems that we live in at the minute? Yeah, um, no. One thing about myself is that I really do try to see things from a point of view of like, what are the advantages of these things? But at the same time, also recognizing that sometimes we get so comfortable with being a certain thing that we kind of lose track. We stop reflecting, you know, on like how we could better the system or how we could better the institution, as you say, that we're working with. There are a lot of people out there that are trying to better these systems and so on. But I think I wouldn't use the word anti. When you look at the word institution as well, it's like a cliche. A cliche is a cliche because it's true a lot of the time. You know, when something gets to a point where it's an institution, it's usually worked to some degree. Either that or it's being beaten into us. So an institution might be seen as religion. And, you know, some religions have become institutions because of the benefits that they've presented to us. And, you know, we've grown with them and so on. Others have just gone, well, we're going to like, we're going to kill you until, you know, you see us as an institution. I mean, sometimes it's the same religion. Sometimes it just depends on who's running the show at the time. In terms of society and the way it is today and stuff. Yeah, I definitely look at it and. I see that there are issues and I think a lot of people out there are experiencing that. The thing for me though, is that where are we trying to find our solutions? And I'm not saying that 
I'm right or, you know, other people's perspectives are wrong. It's more just what I see. There are people out there that are trying to come up with ideas. They're trying to figure out what's going on. But at the same time, we're also seem to be looking towards certain sources of those solutions. Whereas I see the value in those sources. So what you might call the experts, they come with something important to the table and they have you know, we were talking about earlier on about mm. the labels and so on, and they come with their job description and their, their passion. You know, let's not just say it's a job description. I'm sure that a lot of people are very passionate about what they do, but they come with their experience in that sort of sense, having immersed themselves in that environment. But yet I'm of the opinion that, you know, there are people out there that could be, oh, I don't know, plumbers, bricklayers, secretaries, like whatever like doing all sorts of different things but like you know have an equal interest in what's going on and could equally bring something powerful to the table as well you mm. know it's not anti or pro or anything like that it's for me i think my nature is to encourage questions and to encourage discussion rather than debate and i think that's an important aspect as well from an academic point of view you know you go online and academia seems to present itself in terms of a debate type of thing where for me when i look at debate Debate is good if you're going to pressure test an idea, you know, like, I think I'm right, challenge me on it. Within the, the context of debate, it ends up with a lot of side taking. I'm more interested in the idea of discussion with the idea that I'm open to changing my mind. I'm open to changing my perspective, but bring something to the table, but also be willing to be challenged. We can have colleges and universities and so on, but we can recognize that our answers can come from different places. Yeah. A person on a bus sitting next to you could have the answers that no psychologist, psychiatrist or no teacher or no politician or whatever could have come up with. They just happen to be on their way to work and have read something. You know, it's just giving ourselves a chance, I guess. You know? Yeah. Um, oh, and being as open as we can to other people's perspectives and solutions and so on you know so in conclusion i'm not mm. anti these institutions i'm just encouraging people to look at how much of the value that we're placing it's just because that's the way things are and how much value are we placing on these things because they truly are valuable and this is why and how can we improve them I just really appreciate everything you're saying like as someone who has gone the traditional route of like college you know get the status to get the job and all this stuff I will say like you can learn a lot from other people despite them not having that job title or whatever. In my life I wasn't able to go that other route you know doors haven't necessarily opened for me or the recognition of how I think and yeah you know what I can bring to the table has not been an easy journey. If there are people out there that are like me and mm. they have this inherent purpose and meaning that's not fitting in and stuff, then how do we accommodate that? Mm. How do we accommodate people like that? I've heard a lot of things from a lot of wise people over the years. And <laughs> these wise people have been little old ladies and young people and older, you know, like it just comes from the strangest sources. But this one little old lady like, used to teach spiritual healing. She used to have these classes you know, to help people uh, get to know themselves from that kind of perspective. And she always used to start a class in the same way where she would say, no matter where I start, I feel like I should have started somewhere else. There's that idea that we could start at the beginning, but who defines the beginning? You know what I'm saying? Oh my God. Like, where do we start? You, know, you just start. I guess it just goes from there.
the idea that we're so different in our perspectives and so on, I've tried to narrow it down in myself and looking at other people as well. And so you could even touch on things like, well, okay, so we're all human beings, right? Mm, okay. Yeah. And we, but, but we all think differently and we're so different. It's like, yeah, yeah, sure. But in some ways we're actually pretty similar. And one of those ways is that, well, we all have this thing inside of our heads called a brain. Mm. And that brain works a certain way. And the research that I've, well, research, you know, these days that's a bad word, you know. Like, if you say you've done research, it's like, where? Did you go to Google? You know, <laughs> Did you like, do a study? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Where, where is your qualification to have done this, like, purported research? You know, and all this kind of thing. It's like, come on, guys. I mean, we're all interested in stuff. We can, yeah, we can talk. Just to say that, I mean, I do research conversations. You know, I've read books and I've done all that stuff. I've used Google. But I've had experiences where I've been unknowingly chatting to a neuroscientist about the brain and my ideas around the brain and, you know, looking at psychology and looking at what I've understood about how the brain actually processes light and sound, which is exactly what we're doing all the mm. time, really. Yeah. What it does with that information and how it presents it to you and so on. So I've had conversations, like I said, with neuroscientists. I've been talking to them for about half an hour, not knowing that they're a neuroscientist. And they've stopped me and said, like, well, um, can I just interrupt you a second? And, you know, the usual thing for me is yeah. like, oh, okay, sorry. I've talked too much. <laughs> like, you know, I apologize. He's like, no, no, no. It's been very interesting. But I just want to tell you what I do for a living. So I'm like, oh. Right. Okay. Sure. Sorry. Like, yeah. What do you do for a living? He says, I'm a neuroscientist. I was like, oh. <laughs> um, and he goes, no, no, don't go. Oh, he says, I want to know what you studied. I was like, what do you mean studied? He's like, well, where did you study the brain? Where did, like, you know, because you know a lot about it. And I'm like, uh, YouTube. <laughs> I read a couple of books on the brain. Um, this guy's like, oh my God, I, I work in a lab. <laughs> and with other neuroscientists and like we don't have the same kind of conversations as we're having right now they said this is really good but what that points to again is this thing of like how we can narrow our options by the tribe that we feel that we belong to you know so a neuroscientist well i better speak to other neuroscientists because joe down the road who's coming here every day and doing my garden he can't possibly know the stuff that i know one of the most powerful things i've ever learned is that if you're sitting on a bus or a train and you're having a terrible day, if we had a society that didn't make it weird for us to just turn to the person next to us and go, hey, how are you doing? If you're having the crappiest day, that person may have the one thing that you need to hear on that day, but because, well, that person, you know, doesn't look like somebody I would normally talk to or whatever it is because, you know, I'm a skater or a surfer or a, like, or like I'm an academic or whatever it is. You know what I'm saying? It's like if we're going to move forward or even better ourselves as human beings, we need to kind of look at the boundaries that we've set ourselves. How are we going to move forward if we're kind of sticking to our little bubbles, you know, with our little ideas of what's true and what's not and what's right and what's wrong? I totally agree, though, because I think especially now and like even on social media, people like certain pictures or certain posts or certain videos. And then every single time their timeline is catered towards them. So we're literally always living in our own little bubble. So it's very important to actually talk to other people and not be afraid of this type of discussion. Yeah, no, definitely. So, Alan, since you brought up the brain, that's very interesting. Would you be able to explain how our brain affects our perception of the world and how we interact with the systems and institutions that are in place. 
Now, again, I want to do a bit of a disclaimer here, okay? I mean, I mentioned that I had a conversation with a neuroscientist office. I'm not a neuroscientist. And like I said, uh, this seems to be the buzzword for today. I'm a purveyor of perspective. <laughs> so this is just what I've come up with in terms of like, hmm, this is an interesting angle for me, you know? So maybe other people think it's interesting too. We can really get clogged up in our own diversity and our own differences, but all of them hinge inside of our heads. From my own perspective, you know, I did a lot of work on myself, you know, just life mm -hmm. kind of challenged me in a lot of ways. I didn't fit into the systems that were existing at the time that I was at school, for example. Okay, I know things have changed a lot since then. Maybe things are different. But for me, I came out of school with more questions than I had answers. Trying to understand myself, trying to figure out why, you know, I would get emotional in certain situations, why I would get overwhelmed in others. But like I said, eventually just looking at all the different things going down, all the rabbit holes that I went down, I came to that point where it was like, okay, I need to understand the mechanism behind it all. And what actually prompted that was when I went into the spiritual world, I realized that certain concepts and ideas were changing the way that I was processing information. The only thing about the spiritual world for me was that there were extraneous or outside things that you kind of had to believe as well. And that kind of made me kind of go, well, okay, look, I mean, I don't know if it's true or not. I don't know if I have a soul. I don't know if I've been reincarnated 3 million times or 4 billion times. I, you know, I don't know if there's a God. I don't know. And that was something I had to become very comfortable with is this idea that I don't know and what that means to say that. And that leads into this whole idea that people, they feel this need to believe in the truth, but the truth itself, I mean, for me, believing in truth just means that encourages a question more until the truth takes care of itself. For me, the belief in truth is more about motivating a journey, a quest to get yourself to that point where it's like, yeah, that's true. But even then, back to the brain, especially when you look at psychological experiments, like visual experiments where your brain tricks you into seeing something that's not there. And you're like, but wait a minute, if the brain's doing that with light, what's it doing with the other stuff? How much does what I know and have experienced about the world cloud what I think I know about the world? Everything, doesn't matter what we believe, doesn't matter what we do, we're reading something, we're watching something, we're listening to something. It's all the brain taking in light and sound and it's forming it into whatever we've learned in terms of how to form that information. So language, all that kind of thing. And it puts it into a kind of a, like for lack of a better word, a database, mm. right? Now, that database is then what it uses to understand future information. Take language, for example. You, you have this language through which you kind of process all the books that you read, all the people that you talk to, all of this kind of thing. And we all have all agreed that these words mean pretty much the same thing. And so the brain takes that information and it sort of adds onto the database and so on. But it's not a database like we would normally think of it. Like everything's just put towards A and B and, you know, on a hard drive. That's where commonality between us and computers for me just differs. You know, we can think of something from the past, but your brain basically takes common or similar ideas that it learns in the future and kind of goes, oh, well, that's the same thing. So memories from the past that you have could be a combination of all sorts of things that have happened over your life that are of similar nature. So you don't always remember things exactly as they happened. And that's mm. been proven. One of the most interesting questions I ever ask people is, what are your emotions for? That is a good question. When you ask the question, what is your emotions for, mm. right? The thing is, is that 
our emotions are something that we value so much, our feelings, mm. we value so much in our lives. So yet when you ask that question, most people go, hmm, let me think about that. And then you can see the cogs start to turn. Mm. And eventually they'll come up with an answer or, or something. But it doesn't necessarily equate to what, say, for example, in my understanding, what neuroscience has understood and psychology has understood about what emotions are for so just as a little thing i mean if i i mean if i asked you that question like what are your emotions for right i mean would you like what would you say to that i mean i don't know what a lot of them are for but i suppose with some i do i have really bad anxiety like it really affects my everyday life and all that but um i often think the reason for that emotion is kind of as a protector to myself if you know what I mean like kind of preparing myself for possible outcomes to situations I think it's like some sort of a protector and it shows that I care but in terms of other things like I don't know what the purpose is behind me feeling happy or (laughs) whatever you know you got someone to add on to that or what I don't really know I think emotions kind of shape our brain you know like if something negative happens we feel really bad and the next time we'll probably be more cautious about it or you know we see the things that make us happy because we need serotonin we need to be happy and I'm not exactly too sure but I think it's something to do with that like as in like shaping the pathways and shaping your behavior because you connect like the emotions are so strong that you connect with them mostly and then when you look back on something or certain situation it's the emotions that have really shaped the way you think and feel about them and even how you've reacted to them that's a good guess in fairness (laughs) that this is what i'm talking about isn't it amazing Mm. that when we talk to each other so i just gave you some sound right Mm. your brain understood that sound and it went into your individual databases and it presented you with a perspective a possibility Mm. okay Mm. about what it is now the power of that possibility is decided on whether or not it works for you or not for me i found a similar kind of thing where i mean i want to be honest with you like i was struggling at a point in my life anyway this friend of mine phoned me up and said listen i went to go watch a documentary and i was like no don't want to know eventually they said look listen i'm coming to get you i don't care so they came to get me we went to go see this documentary it was a kind of a new agey kind of documentary. And I was at the stage of my life at that time where I was like, kind of getting to a point in spirituality where I was like, I don't know if this is right for me. And so I was kind of struggling through this documentary. But at one point it went, emotions are chemical. And I was like, what? I'd never thought of emotions as chemicals before. It was the weirdest thing. I just realized in that moment that the thing that was driving me insane I had no real definition for it. So that's what like really sparked me. And I'm going, wait a minute, hang on a second. I need to find out more about this. If I listen to both just say, would it be fair to you for me to say that your emotions are there to help you to survive? Mm, yeah. yeah. And that's what your brain is there for. To me, this doesn't matter what we believe in, doesn't matter what tribe we belong to, how we identify ourselves. All we are trying to do, we're trying to survive. And that's our common ground. So as human beings, how do we survive? Well, we need each other, right? We need to form our tribes. You know, the things that you guys can do, maybe I can't do. It's a collective. Some people say that we're a social species. But ultimately speaking, those are the things that we need in order to move forward. But like that becomes a tribal thing, but also becomes a personal thing as well. And this is what healing is all about for me is we're constantly trying to improve the narrative that our brain uses in order to access and process the information that we have in the environment that we're living in. If we're not aware that this is an editable thing, again, at the side, you've also got this thing called, well, 
this is who we are. This is who mm -hmm. I am. This, you know, and these tend to lead to sort of a, a fixed idea about ourselves. But then along comes neuroscience and says, oh, but wait a minute, the brain is far more plastic than we thought it was. Not plastic as in the pollution, but plastic as in malleable. It can change, mm -hmm. you know? It's yeah. like, you can teach an old dog new tricks. Isn't that amazing? But this is why I started off with emotions. It's because I started to really pick these apart and go like, well, how is it that some emotions feel stronger than others? Society today, for example, where you've got political systems, you've got product or corporate systems that rely on us to have a certain degree of emotional control. There's a guy called Edward Bernays that I think everybody should know about. He's known as the father of public relations. He was instrumental in promoting the idea that people's feelings were a very powerful motivational force in our choice making. Emotions tend to override rational thinking. Mm. But there's a reason for that. Because when you're in an environment and, you know, you've got to act quickly, rational thinking doesn't have a place. So, I mean, think about when we were back in the bush in Africa, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And there's a lion in front of us, right? And your brain goes, fear, run, this kind of thing. It doesn't want you to go, okay, like, but wait a minute. Before we, you know, the fear is there, sure. But this might be a tame lion. There's the stories that we build our societies on and the ideas and the beliefs and so on, but they're not always optimal for the survival mechanism underneath in terms of what it needs to do. So we've got this situation where you've got like an emotional system. Now, this is how I understand it. It's a tagging mechanism. Basically, the, the stronger the tag, the more your brain is perceiving that thing to be what you have decided is your survival you look at this idea of when we're kids and we touch on the education systems, mm -hmm. think about your classmates, right? This is the tribe that you travel with through your school journey. When I was at school, you know, in South Africa, you had to learn something. And then at the end of the year, you were tested on that. And well, depending on how much you got right and had an, an influence over whether you continue to travel with your tribe. Here we have a survival issue, right? So as a kid, you're like, going, this is my tribe. This is how I survive. And then getting information and going, well, as part of that survival, you need to be right to a certain point so that you can continue to survive with these people. The brain is growing. It's, it's learning how to function. And at the same time, it's also learning like, well, okay, so every bit of information that I'm learning has to be defined as right or wrong. So what that ends up doing is it becomes a very extreme way of processing information. And then if you don't like achieve that or the certain standard that's set, you're kept back a year or you're put into a different category or whatever it is to try and help you and so on. But there's this thing of like, well, I've lost my tribe. So it becomes almost like a trauma. Maybe the environment that you're learning how to be right in doesn't necessarily work for you as an individual. So you're wrong more often. You've got this situation where you've only got a limited understanding of what's actually going on. You're just living your life. You're just experiencing, trusting the people around you, you know, especially the ones that come before that they understand the environment. They kind of know what's better. You know, for me, there has to be this mutual respect for the elders kind of going, hmm, you know, we might be a bit stuck in our thinking. So we need to listen to the young people, you know, so that we don't get too stuck. We grow up learning how we define ourselves as people and individuals and so on. But our brains grow up around this idea of like every bit of light and sound that I hear in order to fit into my society, I have to define it as right and wrong. You've got polarized right and wrongs, 
lefts and rights, you know, we end up with situations that are reflections of ourselves, again, in my perspective. We could have like 10 political parties, but yet only two dominant ones. These are certain ideas about like, you know, how our brains present information and how coming back to emotion. I want to give you what I think is a quite a powerful example. Like I grew up in South Africa during a period of time where it was called apartheid and was an institutionalized system of government that promoted racism, essentially, that black people were less than white people. So I understand what white privilege is when people refer to that. I lived it. I mean, I know some amazing white people in South Africa and they would never have treated a black person in a disrespectful way. But the law said in order for you to get on with your life, you had to walk past benches that said whites only. You had to walk onto beaches to go for a surf that said whites only. You had to get on trains where you were segregated and, and you know, whites only carriages, blacks only carriages. The older generation, I know a lot of people that fought against that system and what they had to go through. I was young. I was in my own world. I didn't really understand. Look, it's not easy to kind of talk about or rationalize how I processed that, you know, to accept that that's something that I lived and I grew up in when I know that I'm not that. I learned through that system and through subsequent systems where you know, that all ended in 1994. And I hate that this white black thing. It, you know, for me, it, just, it bothers me to have to talk like this. But for the sake of what the point that I'm trying to make, a black government came into power and he had an opportunity to be able to create like one of the most amazing societies. And you know what? Aside from the politics that's going on in South Africa at the moment, I really do believe that we are building that. Here's the thing. In terms of how powerful emotion can be, like I learned about politics especially, and I don't take sides in politics, but I do believe that there are human beings who are naturally meant to lead us. Um, I don't know that politicians are that. I think that comes back to how we're processing information as collectives, as human beings. But what I discovered is that around election times, you find that politics and so on start to pick on subjects that get people emotional. So in South Africa, what the black government started to do was that every cycle of voting, all of a sudden, a few months to a year before that cycle happened, all of a sudden, on the news, racist events, apartheid, you know, this and that and the other, getting people emotional. And for me, knowing what I just told you about what emotions do and how they influence our choices and our ability to rationally think, even though we tell ourselves we are, emotions have that ability to kind of override that or make us think that the reason we're giving ourselves for that decision is rational. Every single election cycle, it's a strategy that's used, get your people emotional, and the chances are they're going to go with what they know. Just like the lion, right? Fear, powerful, survival, tribe. Who's my tribe? Am I on the left? Am I on the right? You know, this kind of thing. And people tend to go with that. That's what I see. The emotional side of things is a very, very powerful aspect of how we survive. But then at the same time, you've got corporate systems that go, wait a minute, look at what the politicians are doing. It's working for them. So if we can get people emotional about products and we can create little tribes around our products, and we can create images and ideas around our products that people can buy into, then they're going to be more invested in those. Is that a good idea? Is that a bad idea? Is that good business? Is that bad business? I'm not here to judge that. What I look at at the world, and I, you know, and I kind of see like, well, are we reflecting on it? 
you know, maybe we're a bit out of control because the planet is in a bit of trouble at the moment. We've become so emotionally involved in the story of who we are that we forget about the stage that we're playing it out on. This is kind of where, like, you have branched out. I've gone like, well, if I can teach my brain something more, I get it to believe that that is equally important as other things mm. by using tags and things like that. And I practice in smaller situations using that idea. You know, so I would start small. I would challenge myself in, in, in lots of little ways where I would feel an emotion and I would just reinforce it and go, ah, now you understand what that is. The big word these days is like a trigger, <laughs> you know, yeah, like, yeah. oh, it's a big trigger for me. You know, like, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's, if you can do it in that moment, fantastic. You know, but a lot of us, like I said, that trigger is usually a powerful force that's trying to get you to go with what it's saying. So it's not easy to override it in those moments, but it's what you do after that with everything that is tagged with an emotion as a perception, mm. right? And all you have to do is understand that perception mm. where it came from. Is it good for you? Is it bad for you? Is it helping you? Is it not? Well, you can change it. The way to change it takes work. It takes commitment. That's where sort of spirituality for me had some very effective little tools. But I mean, I'm not saying specifically spirituality. It's just what I had access to at the time. But like things like meditation was a very powerful tool. And it made use of that natural process of the brain presenting me with a possibility and another part of me being able to override that possibility based on what was currently going on in my life and in the present. But if I live in a society that says, no, default to what you know and what you feel, Look, it works for some people, and those people have just as much value in, this, in society and into human beings as people who are less able to be habitually driven. What are your yeah. favorite ideologies to live by and like some of the values you go by in life? Well, based on the conversation and what I've just said, it's not an easy thing to pin down. I mean, I've come across a lot of amazing ideas that have helped me at various stages of my life. I guess, I think most important ones that's come up for me is this thing about how to find balance and what that means you know actually it brings me in mind this is maybe cliche as well as that you know the yin yang symbol yeah a lot of people look at that symbol i, I don't have the stats on that a lot of people okay but <laughs> I, I, quite a few people look at that symbol and, and and a common understanding is that in every bit of good there's a bit of bad and every bit of bad there's a bit of good but for me, that's still using that same thinking where everything has to be categorized as right and wrong and good and bad and so on. For me, what that symbol really indicates is that everything is balanced. I, I was a martial artist as well. So oh, really? Uh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I did martial arts as well. For, oh, my for, gosh. But, yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. I tried a lot of different things to try to get to know how to manage myself. It, it puts me in mind of even old Bruce Lee. And he, he basically said, you know, be like water. Mm. He says, like, you know, when a water is in a cup, it becomes the cup. When a water is in a teapot, it becomes the teapot. But in that way, it can be constructive. It can be used in a, an adaptable kind of way. But at the same time, it can also be destructive. You know, it can crash, it can break, it can wear away at things and so on. Again, it, it contains the idea of the extremes. These are the things that, that help us to see what's going on in the world, you know? Yeah. But there are people in the middle too. 
this is why like I look at humanity as a whole and I see that you know the ones that build the ones that help us to exist in the environment that we're existing in the builders the, the ones that get stuck in habit or are in habit they're the ones that become efficient at, at what we're doing in the world but there are people outside of that as well who serve just as much as a purpose creative types who don't get necessarily pulled so quickly into habit and they're the ones that are constantly keeping their fingers on the pulse of the environment that's ever changing you know and kind of going you guys out there that are being efficient and doing so, such a good job in the world and stuff like that we are here to tell you that the environment's changing and you need to learn how to change. And I think that's missing from our societies is that we tend to get so caught up in the truth of who we are now that maybe we forget to change, um, that we can change. So that's basically it. And like I said, we could carry on talking. I could talk about all sorts of things like, you know, um, for, for a long, long time. <laughs> you know, but that, that's, that's basically... You know, in terms of ideologies and stuff, there's a ton of ideologies out there. It just depends. I mean, from science to religion to spirituality to uh, psychology. I mean, there's so much stuff out there. But understanding that we belong together, you know, we're, we're, mm. this, we're the same in, in a lot of ways. And much as, you know, we find our tribes and they help us to move forward in our own individual environments and, you know, they lift us up and so on. We need to not forget that we're collective species as well and that we're also in partnership with a lot of other species as well on this like big ass rock that's floating through the universe. Thank you, Alan. It was really a pleasure to have you on the show and a very interesting conversation. Have oh, a good have weekend. A fantastic day. Okay, you too. Thank Bye. you. Bye. And thank you to our listeners. We hope you guys tune in next time. Bye.